My name's Anya Natirina and I'm joined this afternoon by Kevin Gaynor from 3CR. 3CR, Anya, 3CR in Melbourne, which is, uh, I think it might be the oldest uh, oldest community radio station uh, in Australia, but I've only been there for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for 12 years. It's still a frantic rush. Still, well, yes, when you leave your keys behind and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I left my handbag behind <laughs> uh, uh, to turn yeah. around. Anyway, so Kevin and I are going to be chatting about housing affordability and the challenges for low-income earners this afternoon, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. But first, we're just going to catch our breath. Take and, a breath, on you. Take and a breath. Get into a zen zone, and we're going to hear from Donald Fagan's Nightfly, the New Frontier, because I think that's how it sets the scene. Donald Fagan's um, Steely Dan, from Steely Dan, is that correct? Yeah. 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 Him. The, the, the Musos, Musos. The Musos, Muso. although jazz Musos say that he doesn't really do jazz. Right. But then jazz is not what it's supposed to be anyway, isn't it? So maybe he does. That's a good question. We could pose that to Jazz Musos. Anyway, we'll just uh, listen to this track and then we'll be back and with our discussion for today.
Welcome back. You're listening to Transforming Perceptions, and that was Donald Fagan with his new frontier. We're going to be discussing the frontiers today, Kevin and I. Now, Kevin, you're from Melbourne. I'm from Melbourne, correct. You're a Melbourne boy. Melbourne born and bred, but I have, been, I have lived elsewhere. I'm not entirely shielded from the rest of the, uh, Australia. So. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I'm here in Canberra sort of proves that I do get around sometimes. <laughs> And I met you, where, where did I meet you? In Perth. Uh, uh, Perth. Oh, yeah, I think you did, yeah. So I was in Perth too, so there you go. Long yeah. time ago. Yeah, a while mm. ago. Yeah. yeah. And Melbourne, you've been through lockdown upon lockdown, so tell me about that a little bit. Oh, that's been interesting. That's been uh, that's been really interesting. Okay, so um, to give you some perspective, uh, I'm red hot on neoliberalism. I, I have my neoliberal antenna is is very finely tuned. So this whole thing in Melbourne with the uh, with the lockdowns and with the freedom marches feeds into this whole neoliberal uh, rhetoric really really directly because what what we're dealing with okay, a basic defini- definition of neoliberalism is that the individual is more important than the society that the individual must strive to maximize their economic position and the rest of society can go and get stuffed okay that's that's the, the basic um, broad definition that, that's a technical term getting stuff yeah yeah you have to uh, study economics for about four or five years and you'll find that in the fourth year notes of, of economics the, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how it works right? um, so you were talking about the individual over society and then we have this uh, these freedom marches who the, the anti so-called anti-vaxxers i haven't heard anything that they've said that's anti-vax all i've heard is anti don't tell us what to do because i as an individual are more important than society and you can't tell me what to do Mm. so this feeds into a whole libertarian movement that started in the states years ago in fact i read this book called democracy in chains by nancy mclean which i'd really recommend anybody to um, pick up and have a read of Uh, democracy in chains by nancy mclean and it it describes the origins of neoliberalism of of, um, what you call it libertarianism going back to the uh the slave traders the, the the cotton plantation owners who were having impositions put on them by governments saying telling them what they had what they couldn't couldn't do with their slaves and they took exception to that they said you can't uh, you can't uh, uh, hinder our rights as individuals to tell us what to do with our slaves we're individuals and our liberties are more important than we, we, we resent government uh, interfering with our liberties by telling us what to do with our slaves which is just an enormous contradiction in terms <laughs> to start off with but what it, what it explains is that the rich and the wealthy don't like government intervention in their business they don't like being taxed they don't like being regulated they want small government they want government out of the way and any opportunity they get to start promoting the rights of the individual over society they'll take it and this whole uh, vaccine thing with with Dan Andrews, uh, you, governments are, are necessary to control these sorts of uh, health health issues. There's, you're not going to get it done in the private sector. The health the the, the government is the organisation that will guide you through a health crisis. 
well, the Libertarians don't like government getting involved in everything. So they just use this as an opportunity to say the government's overstepped the mark uh, and that Dan Andrews is a tyrant and, and, and all the rest of it. It's absolute garbage, just garbage. So, you know, that whole thing has been politically hijacked by the, by the right, right wing, and this is typical of neoliberal behaviour, the individual over society. And it couldn't be a clear example. But aren't there um, some aspects of government that are the government over society, doing things for the common good for people without consulting the people? Well, I mean, I'm not very good at any of this. I'm just going to tell the audience. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not very, you know, but I'm just going to come from my own little perspective. We're straying a bit here. Um, but, of course, when government oversteps the mark... Um, for the and, common good. Well, it, yes. If, if government is seen to be authoritarian, they're, they're criticised, and some, sometimes rightly so. But the connection is made between uh, socialism and dictatorship, uh, like being dictatorial, way too easily because they're separate issues. If you've got an authoritarian leader in a communist country, it's not that communism or socialism is, uh, is bad in itself, but if you've got a brutal dictator in, in charge of that political system, it it's, should be a reflection on the brutal dictator, but it's used as a reflection on the, uh, on the, the system that they're using. For example, you know, we've all heard about the, uh, the brutal, uh, the, like Stalin and, and, and some of the, these communist regimes, but they don't talk about... He was a Sagittarius. Was he? <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Um, <laughs> but they don't talk about, uh, they don't talk about um, Pinochet in Chile. Now, if you want to take an example of, of neoliberalism and, and, and market-driven uh, economics... Chile, when it was uh, taken over by Pinochet in the 70s, was set up by uh, the their economic structure was set up by Milton Friedman of the Chicago School of Economists, the the um, the archetypal neoliberal, and and Chile was to be the shining example of how neoliberalism works in practice, mm-hmm. and it was a disaster, uh, and Pinochet was a brutal dictator. So. It's not necessarily a reflection on anything other than a brutal dictator can operate in a democracy or under a socialist system. I mean, just for example, imagine if you possibly can that, say, in somewhere like the United States, you had uh, a megalomaniac uh, who was um, uh, all self-interest. They haven't had one there before? I'm just trying to scan my memory in recent (laughs) history to see. I mean, all sorts of things can go off the rails if your leader is not performing properly and so again we see uh, you know the the shining example of democracy and capitalism the united states run off the rails pretty easily for a number of reasons a the system has become so neo- neoliberal that there's so much inequality in the states that the place is a, a tinderbox you've got people living on the streets uh, at the same time as you've got people in multi-million dollar yachts and you can see the divide happening in the states just as it's being reflected here in australia yeah so you've got a lot of tension there in the background anyway and then you get a nut job as a president and and anything can happen that's so, a technical term as well oh, yeah, that, that was year three yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so this this whole connection between uh, an economic or political system uh, and whether it's dictatorial, uh, it, it depends on the circumstance. 
circumstances. It's not um, it's not necessarily just just so. Mm. So anyway, so I don't know how we got to to there from uh, from living in Melbourne. Yes, I live in Melbourne, and, and <laughs> we were talking about the lockdown. I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that you don't blame Dan Andrews for that because it was just what needed to be done in order to. Dan Andrews didn't invent coronavirus. All he, all he had to do was try and steer his way through it with as little damage as possible. And under the circumstances, I think he's done a pretty good job. I thought he did a pretty good job. I mean, compared to some other, you know, states, isn't that become a bit like back at Federation when they were, you know, even earlier before Australia was federated and people went off to the Boer War and there was, you know, we're the Queenslanders, we're the Victorians, and there was sort of that sense of state pride. Well, um, and, and we've gone back a bit to that. Th- what's, what people have realised through all of this, the, the early calls were, well, the federal government just needs to come in and tell the states what to do, as if the federal government was the, uh, the, the, the centre of power in the first place. When we became a federation, it was... Uh, bringing the states together under a uniform uh, federation. But all the power lay with the states. Uh, All the um, uh, income uh, tax and and laws and the rest of it all lay with the states. And over time, they they relaxed some of those and gave them to uh, the central government, like income tax happened, I think, in in the 40s at some stage. But stuff like health and and, uh, education and infrastructure, that's all state power. All the federal government has to do is allocate uh, the resources uh, that it has centrally controlled to the states so that they, who have the, have the original power in this, can make the right decisions on it. And we've seen that uh, exemplified very well with the um, with the whole health health crisis. This is a health issue, and the states have the have the control over how they manage health in their states. Mm. So you know that's um that's just how it is. But I thought quarantine and such things were actually we're not on housing affordability yet, people. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. But I thought that quarantine was. You know, the federal government was supposed to be in charge. Well, of they're supposed that. to be in charge, but yes, because um, quarantine. They're supposed to be, but that, that's a national issue. So uh, you've got, uh, you know, the, the nation, which is we are an island, and so um, quarantine is a I national. I have an isthmus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But of course, they palmed it off to the uh, the the, uh, the state governments because this is a government that uh, this is a government that believes in small government and and believes in not being involved. And so they're they're not a proactive; they're very reactive. They'll they'll only come in when they absolutely have to. They'll they'll get uh, they'll come in dragged, kicking and screaming into into this sort of stuff. But they really don't want to be involved because this is a neoliberal government that we have. They believe in small government, and we've heard Scott Morrison just recently talking about. Oh, the states have too much power, and we need to—they uh, need to wind it back. That—that's their ethos the whole way through. They believe in small government. They don't—they don't want the government intervening in anything. So, uh, except when it suits them, and uh, there's quite a few exceptions to that rule. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So, now, how did you get to be doing this radio show in Melbourne? Radio. So the radio show that I'm doing in Melbourne is called uh, Unemployed Workers Fight Back. And uh, I got dragged into it by my co-host, Anne, uh, who uh, is far more knowledgeable in these matters than I am. And we come at, uh, we come at it from a, uh, a perspective of modern monetary theory. Um, and so... It's a school of economics which is a, a progressive, uh, somewhat enlightened um, uh, school of economics uh, and... The connection with uh, the show was um, a spot became available, and a large part of our economic understanding has to do with uh, employment, full employment. And full, when, when you've got full employment in your society, you have uh, a strong society. You have people who uh, are, are capable of, of um, looking after themselves. Uh, and But that also flows through to 
if you're unemployed, there's many reasons you might be unemployed. It might just be that there's not enough jobs, and that's certainly a tactic that's used by Conservative governments to keep wages down. They voluntarily sacrifice people to the unemployment uh, queues uh, to put downward pressure on wages. But then, of course, there's a whole lot of other people in our society who just uh, can't work for whatever reasons or are underemployed, and they have uh, you know, casual and part-time employment, uh, mm-hmm. and they're put under this, stone, this same uh, downward pressure on wages. It, it's, it's an unnecessary sacrifice. Uh, that that we as a society accept because of our misunderstanding of the economy, uh, and what what we have learned through modern monetary theory, which was originated by a fellow called uh, Professor Bill Mitchell, and he started this back in the seventies, was that you you look at the origins of uh, currency creation and how people end up with with money in their pocket. Um, and can I bore you with economics? People just glaze over. But no, no, it's all right because I mean I don't understand anything about economics. So this right. is a lesson for me. Okay, so so what we found really interesting, we, uh, we were talking about this before the pandemic uh, and the associated economic crisis um, hit us, uh, and uh, I was uh, we were interviewed on 3CR by another show to say w- what needs to happen, and um, this was before any of these payments were made, and, and Anne and I said, well, the government has to prop up the economy, otherwise it's going to collapse. And sure enough, what we've seen is the government uh, inject, well, they doubled New Start. Uh, and came up with Job Seeker, uh, and they brought up the uh, unemployment benefit level to the poverty line. And we saw people living in poverty drop from about 65% to about 6% with that single move. Okay, They also introduced the Job Keeper program, where if you uh, were short, if your work had been reduced by 30%, you got $750 a week, and that's now been turned into the coronavirus something or other payment. Uh, and so, and and these those programs alone cost about three hundred billion dollars. Now, remember, this was a government that came into being through Tony Abbott screaming about debt and deficit, saying that, you know. Um, I know it's been very interesting oh. to watch them spend money, hasn't it? And we had a deficit of Is around it? around fifty billion dollars back then, and now it's. 300 well the, the total deficit we have now is, is approaching a trillion dollars now you would have thought that if a government had come into power extremely concerned about debt and deficit and about how it was going to be disastrous and and uh, what was going to happen to our society that all the alarm bells were ringing but they're not and i'll explain to you exactly why uh what happens with People assume that uh, taxes pay for government spending, okay? You, you pay your taxes and the government then spends. Uh, and that's that's the, the understanding. Let me explain exactly how the job seeker and job keeper payments were made. They discussed in Parliament. They say, we're going to introduce a, a job keeper uh, program. Uh, it's um, put up as a bill, uh, and when it's passed, it's called an appropriations bill. And that appropriations bill is then sent to Treasury, and then Treasury then uh, organised to uh, for people to fill out a form saying, yeah, I've, I've been affected um, and I, I qualify. And then Treasury then uh, instruct the Reserve Bank to send out payments to all these people. Um, and, and that was worth $300 billion. Now, in that process, no money was borrowed and no taxes were raised. That was simple, simple uh, and this happens with, with all government spending. This isn't just this, this program. This is defence spending. This is infrastructure spending. But what it highlights is the process about how currency is created. So the government comes up with an idea. Uh, they pass it in Parliament. It's called an appropriations bill, and then they send the money out. Okay, that's currency creation 101, and that's, that's, you, that's irrefutable because that's how the process goes. So what happens after that is they say, right, well, we've spent $300 billion. We need to get it back. And you've got to ask the question of, of, well, why do you have to get it back? But they say, okay, we need to get it back. So they they tax people. And if they don't get enough tax, 
they have uh, what's known as a deficit. And then they have to fund the deficit by selling... Well, they don't have to. They fund the deficit by selling bonds. And, uh, uh, and then when the bonds are repaid, apparently the, the debt's all squared. But the deficit grows and grows. And the, and the government is essentially borrowing money from itself. It creates the currency and it sells bonds. Right now we have... The, I think this gets really confusing, but just trust me on this one. Uh, we have what's known as quantitative easing, where the Reserve Bank is now buying the bonds that the government issued to cover its debt. So the government is buying the government's debt, which just makes a whole farce of the system. If the government can buy its own debt, what does it matter if we're in debt? And the answer is it doesn't matter. So well, It doesn't matter as long as people are able to afford to live and, and you know, we don't have homeless people that's exactly on the streets. Correct. So if the government is able to inject currency into the economy by simply passing a bill, as it has done with JobSeeker, and as it also just did with, well, as it's going to do with the, um, with the submarines and, and with any other spending that it, that it likes. It can do the same with homelessness, and it can do the same with pensions. It can do the same with unemployment benefits. It can do the same with all of these layers of society that are segregated and ignored. And this is where we come into it from, uh, from our MMT perspective, is you go, you know you can do this. You just did it. They just paid a whole bunch of people, $750 a week to stay at home. They doubled Newstart to JobSeeker, and the uh, the so-called deficit grew, but all that was was a transfer of money from the government into the private sector so that people could pay their rents and their mortgages because if they didn't pay it and people couldn't pay their rents and the mortgages, then the banking system would have collapsed because we would have had something like in the GFC where people couldn't afford to pay their rents, which means the landlords couldn't afford to pay their mortgages, which means they would default which means you'd have all these houses on the market uh, that nobody uh, could afford and you'd see this downward spiral in, in the housing market, which would have led to an economic collapse, very similar to what happened to the GFC. Well, we've actually seen the housing price of housing go up. Yes, well, that's because they stimulated the economy. They, they, they paid JobSeeker, they paid JobKeeper, they dragged the interest rates right down. So interest rates are now, the official cash rate is, is at 0.1%. It's never been lower and it can't go any lower. Otherwise, there's no such thing as interest rates. Uh, so what's happened there is that those who have money have been able to pick up uh, property really cheap but the, the government has what's known as monetary policy, and it thinks that it can solve all of the economy's problems by adjusting the, the, uh, the, the interest rate, the official interest rate, which the banks then mark up to make, make a buck on. Uh, that's their only tool. So what they do is they say if the economy is faltering, we'll lower the interest rate and we'll make it people e easier for people to borrow money so that they can borrow for their businesses and create activity and therefore the economy will, will um, reboot up again. But, of course, at the same time as they're lowering uh, the interest rate for, for businesses, the housing interest rates go down at the same time too. And that means anybody who's got a buck, anybody who's rich enough to afford a house, can buy them cheap. And so they push the price up because their repayments are going to be low. So at the same time they're fixing one part of the economy, they're buggering up another part of the economy <laughs> because it's, it's a really blunt and, and, uh, and, and ineffective tool. They only use monetary policy and, they, and, and they, don't, they want small government. They don't like government spending. They say, oh, government shouldn't get involved in the economy, so, so don't help with public housing, don't help with, with mm. any of that sort of stuff. Just, we'll just make interest rates cheaper and that'll fix everything. Well, it, creates, it fixes one thing here and it creates another problem there. It's a really ineffective tool. Mm. But that's, that's the state of mind that the, the government's in. They can't think beyond this really simple solution that doesn't work. Um, mm. And, uh, and that's, you, you need government. You need fiscal intervention into the economy with the government spending money. It works. Mm. Well, that's what the Romans did. 
<laughs> well, they did. What, they... Else, what else? The Romans? What, what did the Romans ever do? <laughs> well, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, apart from the aqueducts. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but that's what the Romans did when they had all the poor people on the streets and everything. They started to invest in building building, um, yeah, building things and paying yeah. people in bread and stuff. It got people off the streets and into doing some sort of work and making all these monuments, and it, it created... It's a tried and proven method. <laughs> it's, even, it's, we've been doing it for thousands of years. Even before banks. Even before <laughs> banks. But, but uh, what we've been told since the 1970s, since the neoliberals came in and started telling us of their magnificent way of running the economy, which is that it needs to be driven by the private sector and that the government needs to get out of the way and we need to minimise government spending and, and let the private sector do anything. How is the private sector ever going to get us through the pandemic? We'd be, we'd be a basket case. It, it, you need government intervention to to step in and hold up the system. It's a, and you need that during a pandemic, and you need that outside a pandemic because we have other crises happening all the time: homelessness, the um, uh, poverty through unemployment, poverty through uh, disabilities, people who who don't have enough money. They are in crisis, whether there's a pandemic or not. Well, they're in crisis, I think, too, because we were going to talk about housing affordability. And here in the ACT, I was on the Mental Health Ministerial Advisory Council back in 2000 to 2002, and we put up a whole lot of ideas and plans around appropriate housing for people with disabilities and mental illness, but there was no investment. Yeah, 20 well. years of no investment, and now we've got a situation where we've got a grown, growing uh, you know, community. Yep. The numbers are higher. Life is tougher, more casualised work. People with disabilities, the the pandemic hasn't done anything to assist somebody who's got depression, anxiety, mental illness. It's it's really and even people who didn't have a problem beforehand have ended up with depression and all sorts of challenges. Some people lost their jobs. People in the travel industry, hospitality, and that's yeah, still entertainment. Yeah. Entertainment, yeah. you know, musicians and and so forth. I've got a very um, hard-working musician friend. Who's I don't know how many gigs she's doing at the moment, but she's just working her butt off because now there's work, and so she's got to work while the you know make hay while the sun shines, so yeah. to speak. And so it's it's been a terrible, terrible time, and it continues to be a difficult time because we don't have enough accommodation for people because there wasn't any investment way back when inadequate investment in public housing which is all part of the small government neoliberal model you know government should be hands off the, the whole thing about uh, the entrenched poverty in our society it starts with with unemployment and and what it starts with social problems like fa- families breaking apart people you know suddenly going through a crisis and ending up and there's lots of they call them the social determinants Ending up homeless and, yeah. and so forth. Well, that, that comes from not being able to afford to live in the society that's been structured. Now, the, the conservative governments like to have a pool of unemployed people. They like to have people on the streets to remind people that they needn't complain too much. They shouldn't complain too much about the job they've got and the pay rate they've got because things could be a lot worse. You could end up like these people on the street. That's that's why we have an unemployment level set it uh, like we do. And, and along with that goes everybody who's got a disability and the rest of it, they say, look, you know, 
don't you complain too much about your working conditions, otherwise you could end up like these people here. And they use it as a weapon to keep wages under control. That's that's a deliberate strategy that was introduced uh, in the 1970s. It's it's a it's a, a policy. It's a, a nonsense policy, economic policy, called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the NIRU. Check it up. Go and have a look on uh, if you're on Google. Go and have a look at NIRU. Uh, and it's this nonsense. Um, uh, which is f- taught through uh, orthodox economics courses about how you put downward pressure on wages by keeping this pool of unemployed, keeping pool, uh, you, you punish people um, and make it really bad for them and that will shut the rest of you up who've got a job. Uh, it's a deliberate strategy which has no basis uh, in fact whatsoever. Uh, it's just this really blunt, crude, cruel instrument used by neoliberal uh, economists uh, and it's now... You've got the coalition, which um, loves neoliberalism, and you've got the uh, Labor, which is captured by neoliberalism. They have to have to speak the same language, otherwise they get torn to shreds by the conservative press. But it's 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 been institutionalised since the 1970s, uh, and it's completely unnecessary, and, and it should be a crime. But we do it. We we run this cool, cruel system so that rich people can get richer by having lower wages. What do you do with that? <laughs> Well, I think we should take a break yeah. for some music. And then we'll <laughs> I'm here to well, cheer you up on a Saturday, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really good, Kevin. I'm enjoying it. So we'll go to this track and then we'll, we'll, we'll be back with more of this discussion. And I think Kevin's really enjoying himself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started yet. So I try to forget and forget 
Welcome back. You're listening to Transforming Perceptions. And that was all India radio. Although it didn't sound like it, did it? You was lost. It? You you could you forgot what track it was. <laughs> I was watching you. <laughs> you got distracted. No, it's, it was actually all India radio far away. It was a 2014 remix of the It was lovely. Chill. It was, it was yeah. very chilled. It was. Because we, we, we're not really chilled in here. Yeah. Well, no, we are. We're getting chilled. But it is it is it is hard to remain chilled when you understand what's happening behind the scenes and you're feeling a, a bit dudded. Well, I'm not understanding what's happening behind the scenes. I'm just sort of getting it from a grassroots level. I had a well, conversation about my cousins on the other side of the country who'd been saving a deposit for a place, but then he lost his job in the mining, so they couldn't buy a place. They're a, a young couple with a couple of kids, and so they're struggling. And then I had a conversation with somebody else who's in the private rental market, actually not just one person in the private rental market here in the ACT, who is saying suddenly the landlord is putting the rent up because they can and and in some cases they're putting it up more than they're supposed to put it up. I think there's some sort of index of how much they can put things up and or terminating the lease and getting people out because they can rent the property for a lot more money because there's not enough rental accommodation 
It's um it's diabolical here in Canberra too. I know that uh, compared to other parts of the uh, the country, rents are very high here, and it's well this whole thing about housing affordability. Uh, it's it's become very uh, what, what's the word very polarised. Uh, the uh, I was reading an article the other day about a fellow I can't remember what he said, but essentially the way it's working at the moment is that housing is becoming more and more expensive, uh, and compared to the, the price of a house compared to the average wage, is now much larger than it has been ever. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I bought a house once in 1992. I was working as a, a casual theatre technician, and my partner at the time was a youth worker. Um, and even though interest rates were up around nine, nine or ten percent uh, back in the back at the time, the house was was cheap. It was 150,000, which was regarded expensive at the time. Uh, now. There's no way known I could afford to buy that house now. In fact, I'm out of that house now. I, I um, uh, well, split up with my, my partner about 10 years ago and uh, uh, dropped out of the housing market. Her family bought me out. At the time, this was just around the GFC, and, and there was kind of an expect, expectation that the property market might die. Well, it didn't. It just went up, and it's gone up and up and up and up to the point now where even after paying a mortgage for, for 17 years, never missing a payment, uh, I can't buy a house. I'm out of the market, gone, because it's moved away from me. The, the house prices have accelerated well beyond uh, what wages have accelerated, and so uh, the, my ability to buy a house in Melbourne has evaporated. Uh, so I now face my later years um, as a renter, um, and uh, that's how it will be. Uh, it, it, I'm not a bad example of, of what's happened since 1992 to 2022. In, in that short amount of time, the, the property market has exploded. Mm. It's, um, it's bizarre. So, and I think when we were, we ran into each other actually out at the markets, yeah, <laughs> it's the place to meet, epic markets. Yes, and we hadn't seen each other for a long time. We were chatting about this, and Kevin said he'd come and chat with me on air. And I was sort of saying, you know, well, I that's very ageist as well in terms of older women. If you're not, if you've been bringing up your children, I have a son with a disability, and I've got my own stuff. And if you haven't had regular, uh, a regular income and now you're considered over the hill, suddenly when you hit 60, sudden, all of a sudden everybody's very ageist. I don't think I look that old, but, you know, I don't feel 180, but all of a sudden I'm, I'm too feeble to mow my grass apparently or, and I can't get a loan or you've got to have a certain amount of income uh, and a certain deposit to be able to buy a place. Well, you're a, massive, you're a massive liability for a loan, as am I. Um, uh, am I? A, well, yeah, you are, and, and uh, I'll step you through it because uh, I'm uh, approaching 60. Uh, ever since I was 50, I'm self-employed, work as a handyman, and do economics part-time, uh, you know, with friends, uh, <laughs> as, as you do. <laughs> but, um, but as a handyman, like now I, I paid a mortgage for 17 years of my life uh, without ever missing a payment. Uh, and you would think that, uh, and I had some money uh, from, from the settlement, so you would have thought um, I'm a low risk, but no, if I do my knee, I'm out of uh, income and therefore I can't get a loan. So, so no buying houses for, for, for Kev. And, uh, and then as the property uh, prices increase and increase and increase, 
we'll see you later, you're out. Now, uh, you happen to be part of the very exclusive club of the, the largest growth in homelessness, which is um, uh, women over the age of 50 or 60 who, uh, after their, their partner dies or they split up, um, they don't have any superannuation. Or go through domestic violence. Domestic violence, you know, um, yep. Yep, uh, you uh, don't have regular work, uh, you have no <coughs> superannuation, um, you basically have uh, no resources and, and little prospects. You can't get a loan. Yeah, you can't even get a date, let alone anything yeah. else. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually not, the whole dating thing. I, I'm quite pleased to, 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 for that. To, it's, it's another but stress I mean, you don't have to worry it's, about. It's just, uh, you know, being sort of pushed out onto the edge of uh, of society, Yeah, actually. More and more, further and further marginalised. And they keep us um, living uh, longer and longer. So... <laughs> <laughs> all sorts of things. I'm glad we're laughing about this well, because you know, it's you, pretty poor prospects. We're not supposed to live this long. So uh, you know, uh, all these problems hit you, health problems, financial problems, and society is just not geared for it. Uh, mm. It's We're supposed to have, uh, especially in a conservative neoliberal framework. I mean, they've even privatised retirement out uh, so that you have to look after your own superannuation now. So you, you, you are supposed to put aside a lot of money into your private superannuation to cover your... Uh, to cover your uh, going into the uh, becoming what's the word the, what, the, demented the well, the age the age pension has been been replaced by uh, by superannuation now Paul Keating thought he was doing a good thing but essentially what he was doing was privatising the government's responsibility to look after its age population and there's there's no reason why the government could as we understand the government can create currency on demand it can look after its age population without. Uh, any worries, uh, it would be good for the economy because uh, aged pensioners would then be able to spend back into the economy, which would be good for small businesses. It has all the right earmarks for a really sensible thing to do, but it doesn't do it just because it's it's cruel and mean. It doesn't it it wants small government. It doesn't want to doesn't want to make uh, the life of anybody easier um, than it has to if it can put downward pressure even on the aged population. Downward pressure on wages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we go through it again. But the whole housing thing, um, I think you're in an interesting situation at the, at the moment, Dale. Now, what's, what's happening with you? Oh, yes. I wasn't going to say it was me. Well, but yes, generally, I, generally speaking. About a year ago, I received a, a, a glowing letter about the Growing and Renewing Public Housing Program, which aims to provide you as a public housing tenant with a home that meets your needs now and into the future, a home that suits your, suits your age. Here we go, the ageism again. Suits your age, Abilities, yep. my God. And circumstances. Well, the house I'm in suits me fine. Thank already, you very much. You already got one. So I'm I'm in a I'm in a house. I had to wait a long time to get into that place, yeah. and I've been there for a while. I missed the opportunity to buy it because I didn't have enough. Had a deposit, but I didn't have enough income. Job security. And I was on yep. my own, and I wasn't going to get into another relationship with somebody who was we shouldn't have violent. To, you know? It was violent. <laughs> yeah. That uh, as unfortunate experience that I had about five or six years ago. So, 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 so let me get this straight. You've got a letter from, from a, a government department saying that, that they think it would be a good idea for you to move from your current place that you've been in for quite some time, like uh, uh, yeah. m- many years. Yeah, and, they, and that my family needs yeah, because it's the family home and yeah. the grandchildren come there and my son comes there. And, and, and it suits all of your needs and purposes. <clears throat> you have a lot of attachment to it because you've been there for quite some time, but they've decided that it would be a good idea if you moved. Yeah, yeah, because the benefits for me to move under this program yep. uh, include reduced energy bills. What a load of rubbish. Um, living closer to family and friends. Well, no. Well, you do already. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Well, actually, my neighbours now talk to me since COVID. The community has really become...
become much more closely knit. Just, um, on, just on the energy thing, if they wanted to <clears> reduce your energy bill, couldn't they just put solar on your roof or, or update your premises? Well, yeah, they could. But have you had these people come and update anything? At your place? But they could. I right? had to paint. Look, I've done all the ceilings in the place because the cornices were coming away from the walls. And my dad was a builder. And thanks, Dad. He's been dead for four years. But the Oracle of Building taught me how to do all of that stuff. So there was no waiting around five years for somebody to come and fix something. And I re- recently repainted the ceiling during the COVID because so I'd been waiting five years for them to come and do the kitchen ceiling. So it's not costing the government to look after your place because you're doing it yourself. I'm but doing it myself. I'm having a garden that's easier to maintain, well, that maintains my sanity, yeah. having a garden. And you've got a garden, which is We're, a rare thing these days. Well, I need it for my floristry studies because yep. next year it's going to be quite expensive to buy flowers and foliage. Yeah. And I've got quite a number of different foliages in my garden and I've actually put in some plants that will be very helpful for my studies and my design. These are all the connecting points to the place you're already in. That's right, exactly. Moving to a property that meets your changing needs. Uh, For example, no steps or stairs. What do they think? I'm crippled or something. More or fewer bedrooms. More or fewer bedrooms, closer to services. What I need is a shed out the back where I can do all my floristry stuff. Yeah. Would be really, really great. So I don't need smaller. I need more space. I don't have a carport or anything like that, but they sent me this thing and I thought, well, I don't need to respond to this because in actual fact, I'm pretty happy where I am. So then, and I had my arms broken last year, so unfortunately I had an accident. I was in the hospital nine and a half weeks. I couldn't wash my hair. Suddenly, a few months later, I received this thing. Come and have a look at this place. There's a barbecue. Well, I I thought I had a choice. in whether or not I had to buy into any of this. And so, no, I didn't go. Then I got a phone call, Kevin, urging me, oh, did I want to come? And I said, well, look, I don't want to move because of all of these complex reasons, which I don't want to go into. You don't have have to justify it. You're quite happy where you are. You've been there for quite some time. You you don't feel any need to to move, but they feel that you have a need to move. So what's the real reason? Well, now... The real reason is I got this letter recently. Imagine sending something like this to somebody right before Christmas and right before my birthday, which was just the other day. I've been crying, Kevin. It's terrible to do this to people who've got disabilities, mental illness, who are vulnerable, who don't have any money to fight this through the legal system. It's quite extraordinary it's, it's to stressful. do that. It's stressful for hardy people who are, um, have, have no problems moving house. Moving house is one of the most, uh, is right up there in stressful things to do, especially when you've been in a place for a very long time. But this is about pushing people out. This is about pushing people out. We wrote to you on 10th December 2020 to let you know the property you reside in has been identified for inclusion. No, they didn't. They wrote me a glowing letter telling me, do you know about this program? Blah, 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 blah. So here they are now finally coughing up the news. My place is included in the either bulldoze and rebuild and put people more people there. I can understand that people need place, but... Or sell it because property values have gone through the roof and so it puts more money back into their pocket to sell it. And so they're pushing to push me out and I can tell you there's more stuff that has been done. And I have rung the team, uh, the growth and renewal relocations people, and they've just got the answering machine on. I've rung several times because they don't want to talk to me or anybody else who's distressed, fearful, frightened, worried 
uh, feel like they've got a Damocles sword hanging over their head, worried for their family and their circumstances. And so, and this is, I understand that they need more accommodation, but investment should have been made 20 years ago. Now it's all uh, a big rush to push people out and people over a certain age who are in that group, older women, disabled people, people with problems, people who cannot fight back. Yes. is the thing, and I'm very upset about it. Look, there's, uh, you know, it's hard to know exactly what's going on here. I mean, one thing, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Let's say that they're looking at your property to put multiple properties on it, which is Yeah, to well, say, the neighbours don't want that. Right, so so that may or may not be happening. If that's if that's a situation, there may be some merit to some of that. Um, uh, there may be some merit to that if you're going to have more people occupied in a good area um, rather than just one person. That, that might be the I situation. I can understand that, but yeah. what... You know, what if I... That's an if, though. Now, I suspect that that's probably not what's going to happen. You look at the property market. You live, you've been in your place for a long time. When you moved mm. there, it was an ordinary area. Now it's a sought-after area. It was just working-class yeah, area. Yeah, but, but now it's it's like with all the inner-city working places, uh, working areas, they've become sought-after and people with money want them. So. Well, they did that. The housing, there was a whole lot of housing units here in Civic. We've got a rise in homelessness on the streets because they bulldozed all those places and people with mental health issues were displaced and they might not necessarily wanted to go off to wherever. They're bulldozing all the places along Northbourne Avenue and building up these units for sale. Yeah. For sale. For, for, for the, well, because to the, make money. Well, because the real estate market has, has picked up and there's, and there's money, money to be in, made. Well, it's, it's in, in investors who seem to be running the show. Yeah, so so that's that's simply not good enough. You can't turn people's lives upside down because you want to make a quick buck. That that's that well, you say so you can't. That's what happens all the time. You should not be able to do that for a quick buck. There might be some people, Kevin, who re- receive these sorts of letters and say, "Oh, excellent. I do feel like I can't manage anymore and you know, there's broken this and the guy came in to fix the shower recess and he did a crap job." And the roof needs changing and all of that. There might be some people who would welcome the opportunity to move into some place that's newer. And it's a unit block. Of course, we've all seen what happens in unit blocks during this COVID pandemic where one person gets it and then everybody gets it and everybody's in lockdown. But, and of course, environmentally and mentally, it's not, it's actually better for people to have their own sort of green space around them. But... You know, I understand there might be people who would feel better in that sort of environment. At the same time, there are in the mental health sector, there's this uh, model of care which is individualised care. So supporting the person as an individual and, and their individual needs, not just saying you go in there along with all of the other sheep and you just get treated. We'll just you in there. And be, you just get that treatment. It's about really caring about people and providing for their needs, but this is not what's happening in housing. It's just your place is good. You've we spent, want it. We want it. And Off you go. Yeah, get lost. Or you can be relocated to some little place over there. Did you read um, uh, Catch-22? Um, I did when I was 14. And there was... Um, there uh, was a naked guy in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was um, uh, Yossarian. Uh, but there was also another character called Chief Half-Oat, who was a, a Native American Indian. And he told the story of, of his... Uh, uh, 
of his life, which was that they were moved from reservation to reservation. So they'd, they'd shove him off to a reservation, and then when they are on the reservation, uh, they'd discover that there was oil on the reservation. So they'd move them off the reservation to another reservation, uh, and then they would discover that there's oil at the next reservation. And this happened so many times that the oil companies started trying to figure out where they're going to move them to next because they figured that wherever they moved, <laughs> there'd be oil. <laughs> so they'd get it before. <laughs> it's, which is very case 22. But uh, the point is, it's like people are being pushed around and shoved around uh, for the economic gain of somebody else. Uh, and there's no need to. Well, no, no, and I mean, it's damaging people's mental health. And people are frightened to ring up and say, I've got a problem at my house. I've got a maintenance issue because they don't want to draw attention to no. themselves. If they say it's got maintenance issues, well, we better kick you out and, uh, and bulldoze the place and we'll, we'll shove you in this well, nice little shoebox somewhere. And, and uh, That is part of the argument. They've got such a huge unpaid maintenance bill. That this is the some guys come up and said, oh, this is the solution. We'll just get rid of all of those plums. We'll either sell off the ones that look good enough yep. that we can flog and get lots of money for, or the crappy ones. We'll just bulldoze those, especially if they've got a block next door and we can put up some places there. Yep. And that's how we'll sort that problem. And and because we're not recurring maintenance. So if you're um, if you're low income, you don't have the uh, the right to live in a nice spot. They're going to shove you because even if they do find a, night, a new place for you, chances are it's going to be out somewhere. Well, I don't know where my piano is going. Yeah, don't, don't know what's happening to the cats, or my garden. And you don't or, want to. No, I don't, not at the moment. Certainly not. And and I think that this is the this is the thing you should. I, you know, this first letter, it sounds like you've got a choice here. Oh, no, it sounds like, yeah. yeah. I was very worried when I first received it. It, it sounds been... like they're trying to sell you a timeshare or something, you know. It's a... <laughs> <laughs> they've, got, they've got the glowing stories oh, yeah. on the back, you, you know, know Beb's story. I'm modern... really happy here. Yeah. Julie and Morris's story, after 38 years of raising their family in the one home, and it, on it goes. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm happy where I am. The house is tiny. The yard's huge. Yeah. Uh, but it's got a massive great big tree. Are they going to tear that tree down? Of course. Great big body. You, you, you don't it's, have little, little houses on big blocks anymore. It's a protected tree. Mm. So, wow. the, so it's government, so they can tear down the tree, can't they? They can do what they like. Well, yes and no. I mean, this. who knows? But Well, I think that they probably can. Yep. If it was a private place, they'd say, no, you can't chop down that tree that's yeah. dropping stuff all over your car. But if the government's buying it, I guess they pass some motion to change a regulation and do some paperwork and the tree's gone. You know, pretty, that's, that's right. <laughs> exactly. So the, the worrying thing is, I think, I don't know that this is necessarily the solution to the problem for people who are needing housing. But what, what, what this uh, illustrates is a symptom of the uh, inequality in housing that we're talking to earlier. Uh, is where, uh, and it's about human rights too. Yeah, well, housing has, has now become an investment opportunity. Uh, it, it used to be... Uh, there was never any money in housing the, uh, um, back in the day. I remember, uh, if you have a look back through Australian history and you look at uh, the appreciation of housing uh, over decades... Uh, it was it was called safest houses for a reason. It was because you never got much of a return on your house. If you wanted to make money, you, you put it in the stock market. Uh, if you bought a house, well, it was only going to appreciate a little bit, um, probably just with the inflation rate, so there was no money to be made. Well, that all changed in the 90s, uh, from the mid-90s, uh, where I think the, the market bottomed out around 95, and ever since then, 
housing has become uh, an investment opportunity. Now, I've got two kids, uh, one's 28, one's 26. They've never known a housing market that wasn't uh, opportunistic. Like, you buy a house to make money, and then if you can buy another house as an investment property and you've got two houses, then you're going to make even more money, and you can rent one out, you can negatively gear it. All the... All the regulations and taxation settings are geared towards uh, people with money buying property to make more money. But that comes at the expense of all of those who haven't got property who are put into less and less secure housing. And so to me it sounds very likely that your situation is one where there's money to be made on, on your block. Yes, because I've improved the, <laughs> improved it's in, the place. It's in a good spot, um, uh, which was, uh, wasn't was so flash hot uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago uh, when you f- might have first moved in, but now it's, it's sought after, so out you go, um, because somebody wants to make some money. And the whole emphasis on housing being an investment opportunity is wrong. Housing is, is a, a right for every person. Every person in this country should be able to have a decent... Article route. 14 of the UN Convention of Human Rights. Yep, uh, which is... Uh, but some, we signed up uh, up to as well we did but here in the act apparently the human rights whatever it is that we've got here doesn't include housing how mm. clever is that yes yes yeah. you just leave that out so that down the track you can be pushing people out of the homes that they've been living in and that their family is still very happily using and needs to use because families fluctuate and things happen and children may need to come home yep they may need support Conditions change. It's um yeah, it's it's certainly become upside down. But w- what we are seeing is that we're seeing the um, uh, a class uh, uh, divide happening in Australia. The, mm. the haves and the have-nots. There's 11 million homeowners in Australia. They love it when governments uh, create policies that make their houses more uh, more expensive. They feel richer. I've got all these people at the moment who uh, bought houses back in the day that were pretty cheap, and they're all saying, my place is worth over a million bucks now. And they feel good. They feel rich. They go, oh, wow, I've, I've made some really smart decisions, and I'm, I've got a house. That's mm. great, but that's a, a div- that's a policy choice that is reinforced at every election. The last election, Bill Shorten came in with some uh, policy changes to capital gains tax and uh, some of the offsets, some of the tax advantages that you get if you're uh, a homeowner or if you're, you have an investment property. And he got slaughtered. It was, he was torn to shreds by the Murdoch press and the rest of it. So he did touch on it, but um, uh, politically it's, it's suicide. So both sides of, of, of politics are playing that game. But, you know, of course, if you own, a, if you own an investment property, you have uh, the tax write-off. So if you're rich, you've got to, let's, let's stop using the word, word rich. If you are... No, but just hard-working people, and I know there's plenty of them out there, that, you know, they, they find the right partner, they're lucky. They find the right partner, they've got secured jobs, they muddle along, they pay their way, they buy a place and they pay it off, and maybe they buy a place down the coast too. A lot of that happens here. Um, People in our age group have been in the public service and then they've retired and they had a little dinky place down there, they've spent some money on it. They've been lucky and sensible, but some of us aren't as lucky if you've dropped if you've dropped off that that um, uh, merry-go-round, and I have, me I, too. There's there's a, a, I think there's a divide. You could you and could, if you've got a disability, oh, you well, just you and, would, and, and never can, end I, the game. can I say, Kevin, that there is a guy who's got serious disability. His parents have been living in the same uh, housing unit since the 70s, and they're trying to get him out too. His parents have passed away. He's got serious disabilities, and they're trying to push him out of there. 
it's to me it's just disgraceful yeah it's, it's not good but it, yeah it's this uh, the, the divide for me is that if you're on a five-figure income uh you're on one side of the divide. If you've got a six-figure income and probably a mid-six-figure income, you're on the other side of the divide. And what we're seeing is that the property has been sucked up by those on good six-figure incomes at the expense of those on five-figure incomes. Well, there's mm. a lot of us on five-figure incomes, and we've just been left behind. Now, I've mm. always been on a five-figure income. I bought a house uh, when I was on a five-figure income. I can't do it anymore. Mm. I'm out. Uh, it's, it's, it's a... It's, and a lot of it has to do with, it's not just the market. This has to do with government settings. If they change some of the government settings so that uh, housing was more f to put a roof over your head and less of an investment opportunity, we could see this change. Uh, and just Well, yeah. we're not going to have children. I was watching something on the ABC. I watched the ABC News Breakfast broadcast and, and quite a number of other, I've got my ears and eyes open about different things, and there were people talking about delaying having children because they've, They've got to get into the housing market. They've got to find a home. To secure a home, they have to put off having children. Now, there's all kinds of complications around that. A, a woman might find out too late that she's got problems yep. and can't conceive. And then the cost of going through all of the supports to maybe have a child or the disappointments. I mean, this is... You've got, you've got to ask the question, how did we get to this... This has happened in our lifetime. Uh, I know, I, I know. Like well, we, we went, we've come from a, a stage... Well, we've the, lost our industries too. We could go on about that. Yeah, yeah, we could. But, you know, here we are. Uh, in the 90s, uh, uh, if, you were on, if you just had a regular job and it didn't matter how much you're earning, you could afford to buy a house. Well, that's, yeah. that's just not the case anymore. And that's... Have you got any more music coming up? Because my brain's getting a bit fried. Yes. Yeah. I, well, we're just about finished up, so... Yeah. I like your music. Oh, okay. But yeah. If we haven't got time, we haven't got time. No, we haven't got time. So. Okay, radio. That's good. You know, because if my brain's fried, chances are that um, our listeners' brains might also be, <laughs> be getting a little bit fried. Just, just, just moaning and groaning, carrying on. But look, the reason we have these conversations is so that people are aware of... Well, you have to be aware of the problem before you can start taking action to change the situation. Mm. And I'll tell you one thing that this whole COVID pandemic has been very good for. It's, it's been resetting people's minds as to what's possible and what can be done. And when you see that a government can intervene in an economy to a massive extent to support people to keep their heads above water, you, you have to ask the question, what else, what, what other problems do we have and what could the government do to make this a better place for everybody, not just for the entrepreneurial wing-dinger buddy go-getters. It's, it's, it's for everybody. We're, we're all members of the society. Uh, yeah, well, I, I agree with you, and I can tell you that I interviewed, um, and I cannot remember the name of the organisation. It was a, one of the peak body housing authorities, advocacy agencies, a few years ago, and they were talking about these issues then, about the need to invest in public housing and make changes so that people could afford to buy a home and level the playing field a bit. And there's so many different ideas. But the problem with public housing, in, in a, in a, uh, if you have a private sector-driven economy and you start building public housing, you're meeting demand, which means you're putting downward pressure on house prices because uh, you don't have all these people. If, if you create housing for people that haven't got houses, well, there's less demand on houses. Uh, there's less, the, the rental market has less demand on it, uh, and that puts, puts a downward pressure on house prices. And... Uh, uh, people don't like well people who own properties don't like that so it doesn't matter how many good ideas you've got on public housing it goes against the private sector neoliberal model of how to run an economy but okay 
But if there's more public housing that gives people some stability and then there's support to help those people get into a job, because at the moment the public housing system that we've got here in the ACT, people are put in there who've got mental health problems, drug and alcohol problems, people who've got vulnerabilities. But it's not mandated for those people to have any support to learn any life skills or be supported to get into a job or to sustain some volunteer work. There's nothing like that. You're just plonked in there. Yeah, but if I'm a neoliberal, I say, well, what's that got to do with the private sector? And the answer is nothing. They don't care. The, the, the neoliberals are driven by the private sector. They don't want to be burdened with having to look after members of society. This is the whole libertarian movement that goes back to the, the, right back to the, the beginning of this conversation. The, the, the cotton plantation owners who didn't want the government intervening on their regulations about their slaves. It's the same mentality that says, listen, I'm, I'm a, an entrepreneurial go-getter uh, wing dinger and I don't want to have to be burdened with looking after the needs of other people. Then you find out that taxes don't actually do that. The government has complete capability to do it without uh, taxes whatsoever and that these people don't actually have that burden in the first place. And you've got to ask yourself, well, why aren't we doing it? And there's no reasonable answer to that. There's, the, there's no reasonable answer. If you understand how our economic system works, the, the only reason for that is because we're cruel and we want to scare people into submission. Uh, we want to keep the wages down. And the more people there are suffering who are homeless, who aren't earning enough, who have in, unstable work, insecure work, that helps people who are running business put downward pressure on wages. Mm. And, and that's, it's used as a weapon. I might be sounding a bit extreme on this, but go through the numbers. Have, no, a, have a look at it. But I, I think what I hear you saying is this is why we've got this divide, because we've got a society, too, that has more and more pressures on people which can cause family breakdown and this that's that, this is a family breakdown and the dysfunction of our society is a byproduct of cruel neoliberal ideology and policy it, it needn't be that way you, there's an easy comparison to make in the um uh, in the post-war period between 1945 and about 1973 uh the world ran a program called the Bretton Woods Program. I'm getting back into some heavy economics at the end of the show, so I hope, your brain can, uh, manage, I hope my brain can manage this as, as well. But there was a, a period of about 30 years of massive cooperation in the world to rebuild the world after World War II, mm. and it was dumped after, uh, around the mid-'70s when there was an oil shock and inflation ran out of control. So what we know is that when we want to, we can. We, we can do it post-war. We can do it during a pandemic when, when there's a, uh, a need and a, um, a willingness to address social, broad, big, broad social issues. The government can achieve a, a lot of results. Mm -hmm. It chooses not to. And you've got to ask the question, why does it choose not to? It's, it's, to me, it always comes back to a neoliberal ideology. Mm. I don't know what to say, but I, I, I think you've just hit the nail on the head. Well, there you go. Terrific. So the world will change tomorrow. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I really... Is, is, is 2XX like 3CR with a massive listenership that, that is nationwide with millions of people paying attention? <laughs> <laughs> it's community radio here in Canberra, uh, yeah. but people can hear us out into the rural areas around Canberra, Kevin. Yes, well, good, good. Enough. And uh, they can listen in, and I have people listening in from overseas, so I hope those who are listening in from overseas have found this really interesting. I found it a big learning 
curve for me. I just I feel guilty that I've made poor decisions in my life and I don't didn't put a deposit on the house and didn't. And now I'm in this situation. Yeah, but you, um, should, you shouldn't be punished so harshly for that. I mean, everybody makes um, poor decisions at one stage or another. It's, it's just, I know, but yeah. it, this is what we you end up lying awake uh, at night. Yeah. wishing that you had have done something differently. And I don't know. Are there supposed to be supports and services out there? I, I thought that housing support was supposed to be there to In, in a kinder help. world, um, a, a mistake like that wouldn't leave you uh, so... Uh, I don't know what uh, messed up. There'd be another opportunity, or or there'd be somebody there to help. Uh, somebody uh, there'd be support all the way through. If mm. in a kinder society, there's always support, but we live in a ruthless society, which is geared up for entrepreneurs and and people to maximise. Well, people who know how to survive in a ruthless society. I'm not one. No, nah, me neither. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good thing we didn't get on to climate change. <laughs> well, well, yes, that that, that, that says a lot. A that says a lot. So we're running out of time, and I should say give some numbers for people I, I've, thank you Kevin and uh, can I just say that I hope that the that whoever's listening that somebody uh, who's involved in the housing authority understands that this is putting a lot of pressure on people some people in the community who really don't want to move people with mental illness anxiety depression who don't want to be depressed but may be feeling very depressed and very worried at this point in time so I'd urge you to rethink how you're running out that program. If anyone is struggling and needs to speak to someone that don't have a close friend or family member to talk to, please do call Lifeline 13114. Lifeline 13114. Uh, Kids Helpline is there for people who are up to the age of 25, one 800 Men's Line, one 800 and uh, Local Meridian is here to support people with HIV in our community, 62572855. Q Life for members of the LGTBIQ+, 1-800-184-527. They're uh, online from 3 to midnight. And uh, the 1-800-RESPECT number for people who are experiencing challenges in their relationship and domestic and family violence. 1-800-737-732. 1-800-737-732. First Nations Suicide Prevention Crisis Line. 1-800-307-747. 1-800-370-747. Being Supported Mental Health Peer Support Line. 1-800-151-151. And people who have gambling challenges, National Gambling Support Line, 1-800-858-858. Those veterans and returned service people or serving members, soldier on 1-300-620-380. And Companion House for survivors of torture and trauma and refugees, 6251-4550. Do you, know, do you know what, Anya? I reckon if everybody was just a lot nicer to each other, you wouldn't need so many services, would you? I think so too. And I, as I was saying, you know, part of the, the change in my street is that now my neighbours are all talking to each other and looking out for each other. And so why would I want to go somewhere with a bunch of strangers who I don't know? Start all over again. And start all over again and, and feel, be waking up in the night and having nightmares and anxious stuff like no, I do with my PTSD. It's not right. Yeah. Well, no. thanks, Kev. Yeah.
So we're going to go out on a quick piece of music. I can't remember what it was that I've chosen now. It'll be lovely, though. Oh, it'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be okay. You only play nice music on you, so that's good. Oh, that's nice of you to say. Well, I just cannot for the life of me remember what it is. It is, uh, I'm starting, it's <laughs> Le Pornograph. Le Pornograph. Le Pornograph, what show am I on? <laughs> You're in Canberra, Kevin. You're in Canberra now, Kevin. I should have realised. I should have realised. Hey, and give 3CR a listen to at some stage. It's online. Uh, 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 I'm going to give mine. Yes, give a quick plug. 3CR. Uh, So the show we're on is called Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Um, And you can also hear our podcasts on uh, a website called Modern Money Australia which isn't about making money. It's just about explaining how money works. So Modern Money Australia, you'll find a whole bunch of podcasts on there as well. And I actually think that would be really useful for people like myself who aren't very good with money, but also people with disabilities who are living on pensions and so forth. All we do on that show is we speak to people who are really much cleverer than us, professors of economics, etc., and we sit there and scratch our heads, Anne and I, and we just sit there and go, what the hell did they just say then? And then we try and figure it out and explain it to people in plain English. That's 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 what we do. So. Well, I think that's what we've done today too. And thank you very much. We're going to go out on this track and so. See you later, yeah? Yeah, Schlon. Mm-hmm.